approach this song not like a funeral dirge, but there must be a sense of God at work redeeming his people, advocating for his people, rescuing his people. Horatio Spafford sorrowed. He grieved like few men. First in 1871, he lost his four-year-old son in the great Chicago fire of that Midwest city. That makes no mention of the impact of his business interests in downtown Chicago. Two years later, he sent his wife and four daughters ahead on a ship to England so that they could help with a Dwight L. Moody evangelistic effort in England. And his wife, Anna, and the four daughters were on the ship, the Ville du Havre. And it collided with another sea vessel. And it was after that that Mr. Spafford received this telegram from his wife, saved alone. And in in an incredible stroke of tragedy, Horatio and Anne had lost their five children in the span of two years, not to mention their economic fortune, what they had, their livelihood. And as Mr. Spafford traveled by ship to join and comfort his wife, he traveled over the area where his four daughters had perished. And there he penned the words to a song that would help him to move from sorrow to singing. We'll close our message with that song. As we come tonight to Exodus 15 in the Song of Moses, we find a similar movement on the part of Moses and the people of the children of Israel. I think it would be fair, as you know, that these chapter titles like the Song of Moses are not inspired. The ESV translation team provides that. You could say the Song of Moses. You could say the Song of Israel. And you could end it with the Song of Miriam. All right, because she sings the reprise. But for the people of Israel, rather than remain in the mindset and sorrow of their years of bondage and affliction in Egypt, this song gives us a glimpse of their shift from a songless, joyless, and praiseless existence to where for the first time we find them singing together. Now, you could correct me, but I don't know where in the 63 chapters that precede, or 64 chapters that precede Exodus 15. I don't know of an occasion of corporate singing prior to this. But together by Yahweh's hand, they had been brought safely through the Red Sea on dry land, and now by his help they sing together. And it brings us to our big idea. We may sing because he has saved us. And kids, tonight, I'm really conscious of you as I bring this message, and that is for you to remember that you may sing. You might think, I can't go up there and preach a message, but you can sing, all right? That's one of the things, that's a basic application tonight. You have the privilege and joy of singing the great songs of the faith. And so our big idea, we may sing because he has saved us. We may sing because he is saving us, and we may sing because ultimately we can say, in a future sense, he will save us. And so before tonight, before we look in depth at this song, I have some questions for you. 
When you're together here in the morning or evening and Pastor Rich is playing or maybe someone else, do you sing? Do you sing the songs of the faith? Do you sing the songs of the faith that highlight the character, the words, and the works of God with joy? Or are you silent? Have you ever thought that in God's redemptive purpose, every Christian's voice is uniquely commissioned to pray? Every Christian's voice is uniquely commissioned to witness to encourage, to speak the gospel, and to speak and sing songs of praise unto him. That out of our mouths, prayers, words of encouragement, the message of the gospel and songs should be a continuous, life-giving, God-exalting, Christ-focused stream. Between the message of put off, put on, and put up with each other, in Colossians 3, Paul writes this, Let the word of Christ dwell richly or dwell in you richly. And look how it expresses itself, how it erupts. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And as Kirk Cameron writes in Keith and Kristen Getty's little book called Sing, this is what he writes. As a husband and father, he says, God uses music and the word to transform, transform the world. And that our part in his process of renewing all things is to open our mouths. We sing because he's transformed us. He designs our singing as part of our ongoing transformation in the gospel. So let's look at this song with Moses and the children of Israel here in Exodus 15. I want to give you a simple outline here, and that is the song of Moses initiated. That's the first three verses. The people of God are committed to worship via song. And when you see I will, anytime you see the words I will in the Old Testament, that's just the imperfect in the Hebrew. So it's looking forward. It's like the statement of purpose. So what are you going to do this week? What are you doing tomorrow? My wife said, she's, if I say, honey, what do you think I'll do tomorrow? She knows you'll say, Mark, you're going to say, I will cut the yard because I didn't get it done this week. I will. So the song of Moses initiated here is that we see the people of God committed to worship via song. Second, I want us to see in verses 4 through 10, Yahweh's works. Anytime we say Yahweh, we're just translating, if you will, the letters for what is is given to us in English in all caps, Lord, all right? What the Hebrew people would not ever dare to say, they would just say, typically, Adonai, all right? And that's what God did. Then thirdly, in verses 11 through 18, we'll see Yahweh's character, who he is, who he is. And then finally, imitated, we'll see Miriam, and her reprise. And I think there might be some surprise in her reprise for us. Well, first, in verses one through three, I want us to see how the song of Moses is initiated, it's presented, how it leads off, how the people of God are committed to worship via song. 
And when you see that little word then, you might notice that that's just a common translation in the Hebrew of the little vav that precedes a word. It's attached to it. You see it in 1419, then the angel of God. Then Moses stretched out his hand, verse 21, verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses. It can be translated, but it can be translated and. It can can be translated so. But what it does is gives us a sense of moving on to the next thing. They pass through the Red Sea. And so Moses, as, as part of his autobiography in a sense here, is saying this is what happened next. And we see some things about this song. It is personal. Moses sang this song. And he sang while the people of Israel sang. But Moses, it says Moses sang it. You might say there's an individual dimension to it. But it's also corporate. It says, and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying. They sang while their leader Moses also sang. They all sang together. It's like when Rich is leading us, we might have Hannah uh, and Beth on the mic. They're singing as in individually and we're singing corporately. So it's a corporate singing. But it's also a composed and recorded song. I do not think that this was necessarily spontaneous. I think that this, it's reasonable that this was penned, that this, this piece of poetry was developed and put to song, we could say, so that many years later, when Moses writes, they sang this song, it was a song composed and recorded and passed on orally. All right, it was remembered. Just like now, maybe as a church, we're learning Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God, what? Merciful and what? What? And gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and what? And faithfulness. Great. Good job. We're doing that. That's, we're doing this orally. Yes, it's there, but we've done it. Maybe they did this with this song so that he can say, many years later they sang this song. It was personal. It was corporate. It was composed and recorded. It was a first song. In a sense, you might say it was prototypical. And the next record of a song that I can find was by Deborah and Barak in Judges 5. After that brave gal, J.L., took a hammer and a tent peg and drove that tent peg right through the skull of Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army. But it was a first song. It was a prototype. It was a musical song because it was sung. It's one thing, right, if you read a book of common and favorite poems. But this was sung. This was sung. Some of you even know this. Who knows that song from Exodus 15? I will sing on to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Who knows this? Has anyone heard it? Okay, that's right. It's more than his words. We know it to a tune, all right? And we could do that, but we're not for the moment. It's more than poetic verse. It's a musical song. It's, musical, it's a musical metric, if you will. But it was a triumphant and storytelling song. For in the opening lines, it recounts the essence 
of the Red Sea rescue. And you'll notice there were many horses, there were many riders, there were many chariots. But symbolically, he speaks as though for the moment, in the opening lines of this song, there's a horse and its rider, and the waters are piled up by the blast of God's nostrils. And even as that horse with its rider mounted, is charging after the Israelites who've made it through dry ground to the other side, God then says, and the waters pile up. It's a triumphant and story-selling song. And though, again, there's many horses and many riders, initially it's presented to us as the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea, which simply mirrors the very same language on the preceding Page, when you see right there, verse 26 and 27, it says, So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, chapter 14, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw, or he shook off the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And I was thinking about this imagery as though the horses maybe dodged and the rider fell off, or they just It's as though God, by the breath and the blast of his nostrils, his wind, verse 10, you blew with your wind. There's just this chaos and tumult of all Pharaoh's hosts in the waters. They all fall. They're a jumbled mess of mud and riders and chariots and horses with flared nostrils and the waters come all over it. It is a triumphant and storytelling song. It's distinctly personal. Remember we said it's a personal song. Look, verse two, which we'll compare later. We'll compare later with what the enemy will say in verse nine. They say, the Lord, they sing this Individually, corporately, the Lord, look at the word my in here, the my and I. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And then an unusual phrase to describe God. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord, or Yahweh, is his name. And this triumph is distinctly personal. These are not just words on a page. This is not just a memorized metric. As they sing this, this has impacted them, not just corporately, but individually. Well, secondly, I want to see here in verses 4 through 10 what God did. Yeah, what God did. The people were committed to worship in Psalm, but what it was, but what was an expanded view here of Yahweh's great rescue? We find it in verses four through ten, and I want you to think about this if you've never thought that. Typically, in fact, we even had a song, Rich. I don't know if you knew this, but one of the songs we just sang uh, talked about. It was it was an allusion to Psalm nineteen about the works 
and word of God and how through the word we know more of Jesus Christ, what we cannot find from a Romans 1 revelation through nature, though, though through the creation there's something of the eternal power and divine attributes of God, yet it's through the word, God speaking through this compilation of 66 books that we know something of God's saving rescue for us through Jesus Christ. But here... In Exodus 15, in this section, Yahweh's works and character are so interwoven that they are never very far apart. You can't pull them apart. Cheryl and I were fishing recently up at Lake Tocassee, and I have a little spinning rod, and I've realized that I need to go on YouTube and figure out how to put line on my spinning reel. Because typically after four or five casts, what happens is I get this big jumble of If anyone knows, does anyone fish with a spinning reel? You know what this is like? Yeah. And then you get this jumbled bird's nest, and you're trying to undo it, and you know the fish are biting, and you only have like 30 more minutes, and then they won't eat. But you're sitting there. I'm sitting there in my canoe, and I'm like, honey, would you pull this string? And you can't pull them apart. That's how Yahweh's works and his character are. They're so interwoven, it's difficult to pull them apart. In fact, they are never very far Sometimes they're pulled together. Look at this. Verse 7, for example. In the greatness of your majesty, there's the character of God, who he is. Now look at the work of God. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. So the works and character of God are so close together, sometimes they're difficult to pull apart as strands. But second, I want us to see that the essence of the rescue here is repeated in different expressions for emphasis, so we won't miss its importance. Look at verse 1. Verse 1. I will sing. It's this, this rescue is something that they say in the language of first person, I will sing to the Lord. But then look in verse 4. There was a like a single horse and rider, verse 4. It's expanded. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. Okay? You see that. It's larger than a single horse or rider. It's Pharaoh and his host. Not just thrown into the sea, but they're sunk into the sea. All right? At the end of verse 4, it says... He cast them into the sea. They were sunk in the Red Sea. And then look at the end of verse 5. They went down into the depths like a stone. And then in the end of verse 10, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now, kids, you know if you've ever liked to take a stone, a flat stone, and skip it across the body of water. I'll tell you this. No matter how bad or how good you are at skipping a stone... At the point that that stone starts, stops skipping and goes no further, there's only one thing a stone does. What does it do? It sinks immediately, without fail, infallibly, never defying gravity or the relationship between the density of a stone and the water that surrounds it. It sinks like lead. And so did the children, or so did Pharaoh and all his hosts. They went down into the depths like stone. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. 
And then six verses later, you see verse 4. Think about that, right? Verse 4. He casts them into the sea. And then look six verses later. Look at this language. Not only were they cast into the sea, it says they exult in song that the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. They sank like a stone. They sank like a lead. And not just in the seas, but in the mighty, look at that at the end of verse 10, but in the mighty waters. And we're helped to understand what Yahweh does by this anthropomorphic language. Now, kids, I have a question for you. Does God have a body like men? No. That's exactly right. What was that? Okay, that's all right. God does not have a body like man. Does God have a nose like you and me? Really? No. All right. Does God have a right hand like you and me in the sense that we have right hands? No. But God has reached down to us to use this language that we call anthropomorphic language so that he casts Pharaoh and his contingency into the sea like someone who's in the bed of a pickup truck and and picking up a whole bunch of bags of malt and tossing them off one at a time from the bed of the truck. He did that with the Egyptians. And in verse 6 it says, In his right hand, it said it's both glorious in power and it shatters the enemy. Okay? And I think this is an unusual phrase. We already talked about it in verse 7. That they sing that in the greatness of God's majesty. Now, I don't think most of us connect majesty with God's power in judgment against his enemies. But this is a rare occasion where I think we find that in the world. So when you think of God as majestic, and we'll see this in a moment, majestic in holiness, he's also majestic in in judgment. This is our God, and I say, let's behold him in his majesty. I want you to see here that in their song, the people of Israel understood, I believe by their song led by Moses, the nature of the enemy and their adversaries as not simply theirs, but they speak of your adversaries in verse 7. Not simply our adversaries, but as they sing this song, To the Lord, don't forget this is a song, to the Lord, even as they recount the character and works of the Lord, they identify principally Egypt, Pharaoh, the hosts of Pharaoh, is is God's adversaries, okay? Now why? Yes, for a moment, think. Egypt was their adversary. But because Yahweh had said, I will fight for you, stand still, be quiet. In fact, this is in chapter 14, where Moses, speaking for the Lord, says to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And so in the truest sense, the adversary is particularly Yahweh's. It is with him that they will have to deal and it is by him that they will be destroyed. And so by application, just for a moment, if you are dealing with a particular sin, 
or a particular discouragement, and it's valid to say that because we're commanded to encourage one another. And in fact, we're even told in Hebrews 3.13 to encourage one another daily so that we'll not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We must remember that as we fight, as we wake up in the morning, seeking to live godly and holy lives, fighting sin, resisting temptation, putting putting to death the sin that still remains in us, we must remember God fights for me. God fights for me. And so, ultimately, for example, for Pharaoh, for his hosts, it is with Yahweh that they will have to deal, and it is by him that they will ultimately, and they are ultimately destroyed, covered over in the sea, the Red Sea, to perish. Well, there's one final thing I want us to see from this section, and that is that Yahweh's works that is what he infallibly accomplishes, are contrasted with the hubris and pride of the enemy, in this case, Pharaoh and the hosts of Egypt. And as I mentioned just a few moments ago, contrasts the spirit of Moses and the children of Israel, verse two, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. Contrast that with the pride and hubris, the arrogance of the Egyptians. The enemy says, verse 9, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You know what he didn't know? You know what they didn't know? They did not know the promise of God to Abram on the day God cut a covenant with that childless man, the man who still yet did not have one heir in Genesis 15, that in fact, no, Egypt would not come out with great spoil, but God would come out. They would, God's people would come out of Egypt with great spoil. That was promised to them after 430 years in Genesis 15. They spoke that which they did not know this is our God let's behold him in this song it was God's anger the blast of his nostrils that is his anger his valid impatience his short nose not the long nose of his unfailing love, of his slowness to anger, as we've learned from Psalm 86, 15. It's there that's demonstrated. It's all that's required to vanquish the purpose, the malice, and the power of the sworn enemies of Israel. Y'all imagine this. Look for a moment if you overlooked it. Look at verse 10. Look at this song. You know how a three-year-old looks at their birthday cake and they come up and everyone says, okay, on the count of three, make a wish and blow. And they go, and it's done. In their song, they said that Yahweh, like a three-year-old blowing out their birthday cake, blew with wind and the seas that were piled up 
came back over and covered Pharaoh and his hosts. And what became of them? The same of any piece of lead or stone in water. It sank to a watery grave. Well, third, I want us to see in verses 11 to 18, just briefly, something about Yahweh's character, who he is. We've seen something of his power, the power of his right hand. We've seen something of his majesty that overthrew the enemy. And now there's more in verses 11 to 18. And you might ask, you might ask, what did Yahweh do? But this first song takes in more. It asks more, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Verse 11. And piling on, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You know how it is sometimes when you've been sinfully uh, and you're on your high horse with another person, and you start uh, just lobbying questions at them. What was it that I didn't do for you? What was it that I did? And you keep, you know what it's like? Has anyone ever done that with someone where you've, you, you've weaponized questions to another person? You've weaponized words? Well, here in their song, they're weaponizing to discover God's character and make a point about it, all these questions. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Not just majestic in judgment, but majestic in holiness. Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And there's an implicit answer. God, you are with out equal. You are without equal. And look how he directly answers their own question in song about the unmatched character of God. I think you'll find this interesting. Those two questions about who God is in his character is answered by a short statement of what he's done. You stretched out, verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. For the sake of time, I'd like to just move on and look at this last, these last few verses to say nothing of those verses between 13 and 18 where There's that steadfast love of God, the one who is majestic in holiness. They sing and say, you've led. And I've been thinking about this this week, if that means as though their steadfast love was like a boat that they traveled in, like an ark, that idea, or that their steadfast love was an instrument, the means by which Yahweh led the people whom he had redeemed. And I think it could be the latter because he then says, if you parallel it, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode so that we could read it this way. Oh, Lord, as they're singing, you've led us by your steadfast love, the very people whom you have redeemed. You have guided us by your strength to your holy abode. In all of this, just like a fire, and some of you kids, you know what this is like to have a fire so hot so very hot that though the fire is there, you can't get any closer than that or your blue jeans, like your jeans start to feel like they're going to ignite. 
You could hold a marshmallow a few feet away and you think, that marshmallow's going to melt. That's what it was like for all the people who heard. The peoples have heard, they tremble, verse 14. Pangs have, been see- have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Just hearing about the renown, the works, the works and the character of God, his majestic judgment, how he fought for his people Israel had put terror and dread upon the other peoples, even the peoples to where they were headed. And look how they sing. They end that section by singing this, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Well, lastly, from verses 19 through 21, I want us to see the song of Moses imitated. You might say a reprise, a little phrase. I like the way Wesley spoke of this as the song, if you will, the song of Miriam. Yeah, borrowing from the song of Moses. And I don't know if any of you have thought about the significance of how this passage ends, of how this, this section here. So verses 19 and, and 20, back to narrative, the song is over. But then all of a sudden there's Miriam with this, ensemble of other women all right and here's what i want us to see we're reminded of what the lord did to pharaoh and his hosts while rescuing the children of israel as they passed through the red sea it's like we can't forget it you find it in verse one you find it in verse four you find it in verse five you find it in verse eight the flood stood up you find it In verse 10, they sink like lead in the mighty waters. You find it in verse 12, the earth swallowed them. You keep seeing it, but she sings it again. And there's this new figure. For the first time in the Bible in Exodus 15, 20, Miriam the prophetess is introduced to us. This song was a personal song. Moses sang it, and now Miriam sings it. And from what we can tell, she's singing while this team of other women is dancing and doing their tambourines. All right, that's the evidence of it. It says, then Miriam the prophetess, she took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And it said, and Miriam sang to them. This song was a corporate song. Israel sang it, but it was personal. Moses sang it. And now, in this short reprise, Miriam sings it to her fellow Israelite women. And there's a feature here an ensemble of women singing this, not a cappella, that is without instruments, but accompanied with tambourines in dancing. This wasn't the time for a funeral dirge. This was a time of triumph and joy for God's saving rescue. And she sings. She doesn't go rogue. I want you to notice this. She sings, in effect, the opening lines with a slight variation to the song that I think Moses, maybe with a team like Keith and Kristen Getty and Matt Papa and Matt Boswell, kind of a team in that day, put this song together. She doesn't go rogue. She sings it. And she sang to the other women as they were dancing and playing the tambourines, and it looks like she had one in her hand as well, maybe establishing that rhythm. And she sings a song, the reprise, 
the opening lines that perfectly pattern verse 1. And what's beautiful here is that she's commanding at one level, these gals around her dancing and with tambourines in hand. It says she sang a song to them. Sing to the Lord. Here's in the imperative. It's a command. All right? Verse 1 was this expression of purpose. But verse 21 is actually an expression of necessary and a joyful duty to sing in response to Yahweh's strong right hand. Now, interestingly, in the Hebrew in verse 21, when she sings, sing to the Lord, it's in the masculine plural. And I think that's very interesting. She's singing... Because there's the option for a feminine plural. But here the tense is as though she's singing to the women, but maybe around there's this huge crowd. In fact, after all, we think Israel was something like two million strong in number, men, women, and children. But she's singing that. So I ask, do you sing? It's one way to make the journey from sorrow to joy it's to sing children you can sing singing is our response of worship to what God first first to what God is as he's revealed in his word but also in response to his renowned and saving acts brothers and sisters and children singing expresses our unity but it also promotes our unity Brothers and sisters, singing strengthens us for the journey. Brothers and sisters, singing shapes us for our eternal heritage of worship. For as Pastor Jamie has showed us from the book of Revelation, there's an important ingredient for the hope of heaven, and we see that as the book of Revelation anticipates that, and that is we'll be singing praise and songs of worship to our God. You see, singing is the special privilege of the redeemed people of God. And so Horatio Spafford found a way to sing in that famous song, It Is Well With My Soul. I don't know if ever a song has been written after a man lost four daughters to the Atlantic Ocean, but he did. When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and it's shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pain shall be mine, for in death as in life. Thou shalt whisper thy peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day 
and their faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. A song in the night. Oh, my soul, I ask you, do you sing? Do you sing the songs of the faith? Do you sing the songs of the faith that reveal, that bless, that praise the very works and character of our God? If not, let me tell you, that's the way from sorrow to joy. Let's sing together.